0: It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in, because the runout starts now. Today's show is brought to you by Outdoor Research. Outdoor Research invites you to check out the new Refuge hybrid hooded jacket and the legendary Ascendant hoodie. Yes, legendary. Through Outdoor Research's clever use of quantum multiverse theory, both the Refuge and the Ascendant are simultaneously the ultimate mid-layer jacket. Yes, your mind just got blown. The refuge is slim cut and ready for action and movement on cold days, while the ascendant is ready for pretty much everything in this universe and the one that popped into existence at the end of this sentence. They're lightweight and perfect for stashing in the pack against that inviting t-shirt morning that turns into a grueling mess by afternoon. So don't limit yourself to one universe. Branch into infinity at outdoorresearch.com or your favorite local shop. Outdoor Research is a proud, if sometimes slightly confused, sponsor of the Run Out Podcast.
1: In the 1980s, the rules of rock climbing were in a state of entropy. Climbers clashed over the fairest and most ethical approach to climbing and how to advance difficulty within these parameters. Depending on whom you spoke to, hangdogging was either a serious taboo or the path to righteous radness. Of course, one trip to any sport crag anywhere on Earth today offers an obvious clue as to which side ultimately won. That hangdogging was once taboo now sounds as anachronistic as using a Rand McNally Atlas to navigate your car while simultaneously fast forwarding your Phil Collins tape to get to the part of In the Air Tonight when the drum solo drops but such was the 1980s. To push the ethical boundaries in the 80s was also to accept the risk that you might just get punched or taunted back at the campground. Yet when a climber achieved an inspiring ascent by hook or crook, oftentimes nothing more needed to be said. This is Andrew Bicharot, I'm here with Chris Kalous, and you're listening to The Runout. In this episode, we speak to Jeff Smoot, a climber of the era of big hair, bad attitudes, and bolts galore. Jeff, of course, has nothing resembling a bad attitude, despite the fact that we experienced a number of frustrating technical difficulties during the recording of this episode. Nevertheless, we managed to hangdog our way to the anchors and he got a pretty great conversation about this era, which he has captured in his new book called Hangdog Days, Conflict, Change, and the Race for 514. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Jeff Smoot. So, Chris, I was curious, since you you have such a deep history with the 1980s, if you would give me who the best
0: rock duo is of all time from that decade. From that decade would obviously be Hall and Oates even though they started in the seventies. I, I celebrate their entire catalog, but I think they're, the, the songs from the eighties are definitely Darryl the Daryl is
1: like a hero of yours, I think.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, totally, totally. And and I am a total child of the eighties. I, I, I went to high school from 86 to 89. Mm. So span from Hall notes all the way to the first Guns N' Roses album. <laughs> well,
1: the 1980s were, that was my, I'm a decade behind you. So that was my grade school years. And I was, uh, a big Michael Jackson fan and when I was a naughty boy my mom would take away my thriller cassette so that was a uh, that's kind of my background there but we are not talking about pop culture we're going to be talking about rock climbing which is very much not pop culture in the 1980s
0: uh, maybe the opposite of that there's one more important fact to, to point out as I started climbing in the you 1980s did. so yes I started climbing in October of 1989. So I just caught oh, the just very end it of snuck it in 80s. there, huh? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, go ahead. Well, we are here with
1: someone who has far more street cred than you, Chris. And um, we are here with Jeff Smoot, who has just written a great new book called Hang Dog Days. I have not read it yet. I've, I've read some excerpts and I, I published one on my website, Evening Sends. So uh, thank you, Jeff, for that. But yeah, we're here to talk to Jeff about his book and about this storied, fabled era of climbing. So welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Andrew. It's uh, great to be doing the show.
1: So before we get to your book, maybe you could just tell us a bit about who you are and how you started climbing and maybe lead into what drove you to write a book about the 1980s. Sure.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, So, wow. Wow going back all the way to the the 70s and the 80s. So I've been climbing since probably the mid 1970s. Um, I started climbing in uh, junior high. And uh, I bought my first rack off of another student who decided he was giving up climbing, because he didn't like falling off. And so um, I didn't have the heart to tell him that he must be doing it wrong. He wanted twenty dollars for a dozen stoppers and hexcentrics, and I was very eager to to buy them. So, um, I I grew up in Seattle, and Seattle has a very strong Mountaineers influence. So, I grew up in the cult of the leader must not fall. You must maintain three points of contact at all times. You must wear a helmet, and if you forget one of the ten essentials, you'll be left behind at the trailhead. So. Back then, you know, we worked our way up through the grades. There weren't, no, weren't any climbing gyms. So, you know, 5'9", five, 5'10", five, those, were, those were scary, hard, serious, big deals. I was, uh, you know, really inspired, though, when I got into rock climbing by, um, you know, Yosemite climbers, John Backer, Ron Count. Mark Hudon and Max Jones were really a big influence with their, um, articles, you know, uh, States of the Art and Long, Hard and Free and Astro Man. That was, I really loved that article. So, you know, being inspired by those guys, I started making road trips in the early 1980s, uh, to Joshua Tree, to Yosemite, then back to Joshua Tree and back to Yosemite, uh, kind of every spring and summer, uh, making the pilgrimage during, uh, one of those trips i I met Todd Skinner and uh started uh, climbing with him quite a bit, uh, arranging trips to meet with him. I also met Alan Watts on one of those trips and ended up going down to Smith Rock and also on some road trips with him so I kind of fell in with their camp and uh you know i wasn't I wasn't a real serious hangdogger five thirteen climber like they were but they they suffered me along. I I was a good belay slave, I think. So they were happy to have me come along. I also wrote articles for the magazines, and you know, I'm sure Todd really liked that. <laughs> Alan probably appreciated it too. But um, so I started working on the book in the late '90s, I, 1999, I think. I started a, a website and was writing some material for that was kind of novel at the time, you know, with the Internet and you, you could start a website and post your own articles. So you didn't have to go through the magazines to be published. You could just write your own stuff and put it out there, which was pretty fun. I put, you know, but I put a few chapters together and I thought, hey, this might be the start of a book. I was pretty sure somebody else would write it, though. But I kind of envisioned that if I did it, I would, uh, you know, I would call Todd, I would call Alan, we'd get together, have some laughs, tell some great stories, and those would provide the foundation for a really fun book. But then in 2006, Todd died. And I just decided that, you know, nobody's written this book. And it's a, it's a great story. Nobody's telling the story. And so I just need to do it.
1: Yeah, so one of the things that's really interesting is that we have this discussion in climbing right now that's and has been for the last 40 years where it's the stone masters and then you know basically the bouldering era and takes us into like the modern age and the, the 1980s kind of gets glossed over in our more fond memories of of what climbing history represents it's sort of looked at as this bitter confrontational era. And in fact, it was like really one of the more formative decades of this sport insofar as so much of what we do today is a derivative of the style and the approach and the ethics of the 1980s.
2: Yeah, that's true. Um, I just, I'll take you back to the 1970s though. Um, You know, Ray Jardine was was a Yosemite climber, although he's, you know, probably the, the, the ugly stepchild of Yosemite climbers from the 70s. Uh, you know, he was actively hang-dogging, uh, you know, he chipped some holds um, and wasn't very popular because of that. But he, you know, he climbed in a style that uh, later became called red-pointing. You know, he hang-dogged mercilessly up a lot of routes, and, but he would, you know, return and climb them from the ground up, placing gear on lead without falling, before he would claim it as a first ascent. And there was a time there where I think he had done, you know, there were like maybe like eight, five, twelve routes in Yosemite, and he had done the first ascents of five or six of them. So he was really pushing it. Matt, those numbers may not be right. There may have been more at the time, but he was he was really pushing, you know, the the limits of difficulty and the limits of tolerance of of the yosemite climbers so what what jardine did in the 70s kind of influenced people like Don and jones who you know were admitted hangdoggers um, and they went out and repeated some you know the phoenix and did some very hard routes on their own um, and hudon and jones really influenced the climbers coming up in the late 70s and early 80s with their, their magazine articles and slideshows that they took all over the country. And so.
1: Wait, I want to pause ahead. you there. Cause I have a question about Jardine that I've always wanted to know. Um, now it's true that with the Phoenix, for example, he hung up the route and that was the free ascent. Is that correct? Like, so he climbed all the moves free, but he hung on cams maybe two or three times from what I recall. It, but he considered that to be the first free ascent. Is, is that accurate? No.
2: Well, that's not what I heard when I talked to Mark Hudon.
1: Um, okay.
2: That it wasn't a it wasn't a you know a hang ascent that he returned to do it completely. I mean, maybe the first time he did it, he did. But but what I heard was he came back and did it all from the bottom to the top. But then I also read i think on ray jardine's own website that he lowered the start of the route to make it harder because the original route started higher up where the you know the overhanging traversing crack part is and he decided that the route would be harder if he you know rappelled down a little farther and climbed that super thin crack and uh you know according to the people who went there afterward he made the crack a little more friendly for his big fingers uh before he did it so you know when the valley climbers said that was a glorified aid climb that you know yeah it was but then you know it, it got cleaned up when Hudon and Jones did it Mark led it without friends Max followed it without falling so i don't know if there's ever been a second leader and follower climbing it in succession without falling and then and then L- uh, Largo came and did the third ascent he was the only valley climber who was willing to go near it and but I was just going to say that, you know, what Jardine started, um, you know, he didn't, he obviously didn't do it in the best style, however he did it. Um, But, you know, as other climbers came to try it, they, they improved on his style. And obviously that, you know, with Honold soloing it, you know, there you go.
0: So one of the interesting things, I mean, one of the fun things actually about history now is, is hearing about these conflicts. I think it's a really interesting era, uh, going from the 70s into the 80s. I mean, even the phrase "hang dog" was was a pejorative to begin with. Although it sounds like you guys embraced it at one point. How else did the res- this resistance to what Alan was doing, what what Todd was doing, um, and what you were doing uh, manifest itself uh, uh, over the years? You know, what were some of the things that that, or how you knew? I mean. You know, there's no Facebook, right? So you can't write an angry post or whatever flame somebody on social media. So how did people express their discontent?
2: Well, there was you know, there was the nightly slander session around the campfire where if you were weren't there, you were talked about and sometimes if you were there, you were talked about. <laughs> um if you if you were if you were hang dogging and certain climbers saw you hang dogging, uh they'd let you know that they didn't approve. And, you know, I remember one, one time Todd was um, at Joshua Tree, and he was working on something and you know, he was hangdogging all over whatever it was. And John Sherman strolls by, and he just yells out, you effing hangdogger. And just, you know, was given Todd an earful. Now, John was one of Todd's best friends, but he just, you know, was like, you, you know, get down from there, you, you shouldn't be hangdogging. And you know, other climbers if they knew you or not if you were hang dogging they'd yell at you you know just call you a, a weenie and you know you, you shouldn't be doing that you're just aid climbing you should get down you know and you'd hear the rumors from you know the more excitable climbers who had their really, really um, good slander sessions going where they'd say some really really <laughs> mean things about certain people and you'd 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 catch wind of it in camp 4 or hidden valley campground but I didn't see a lot of direct confrontations when I was there. There were some close, close confrontations that could have escalated into fistfights. Um, I know that there were some fistfights. I wasn't there to witness them. But like when Todd Skinner was working on the stigma it, on Cookie Cliff, uh, John Backer paid him a visit and, you know, just in a polite way told him, we don't do that around here. You shouldn't be doing that. You should try to climb it in good style. What you're doing is just not acceptable here. And Todd just kind of said, well, you know, thanks. Um, I'll keep that in mind. And then he just went right on doing what he was doing. So Todd Backer um,
1: was, was mansplaining climbing to to Todd Skinner. Yeah, I, that's a good way to put it. Um, where do you think this animosity came from? Was it rooted in just this pure belief of what style could be or what the what the pure version of climbing could be or was it mostly motivated by jealousy or distaste for personality
2: you know i think it really started with people believing that climbing was this this exalted art form that you know you, we should really try to do things in as as pure and natural a way as possible climbing the rock as we find it starting from the ground and climbing up, you know, preserving the spirit of adventure and ascent. You know, if you fall off, uh, treat that as a failure and go back to the start and try again. Um, And, you know, John Backer really epitomized that approach. Um, I think he was inspired by John Gill. I think the, you know, the Colorado climbers, Jim Erickson, chiefly among them, and David Brashears uh, really took it to a high level. But then, you know, what was happening when you had Todd Skinner and Alan Watts and Christian Griffith and other people who were pushing, pushing the the limits and not adhering to the old rules, you know, they, they were climbing harder routes. For one thing, they were climbing them faster. Uh, they were getting their name in the magazines more often. And they were, you know, they were starting to climb the projects that had been saved for when we're ready. Uh, And these guys weren't waiting until they were ready. They were getting on them and getting them done.
0: Yeah, you have a quote in in one of the excerpts um, that that that's online um, at this point from the book where Alan says that, quote, the ethics are holding them back. I know why they're doing it. And I think it's admirable, but it's counterproductive. Um, What do you think he meant or what did you guys mean by thinking that it was, in fact, admirable that they that they were holding these ethics so strongly? Well, I think Alan,
2: more so than Todd, respected the the local ethic. Uh, he wasn't going to go into Yosemite and, you know, start placing bolts, even though that's what he did at Smith Rock. He, he, w- he would never have thought of going to Yosemite and rat bolting a route. Uh, he didn't have a problem hang dogging on a route. Hang dogging didn't hurt anybody. You know, it was just a different style. Um, but but I think you know he admired the on-site ascent as much as anybody. He he would try for that. Sometimes he had to be persuaded to try harder uh, because he came from a you know his approach that he developed at Smith Rock was well let's you know let's make sure the route's in good shape and then we'll and then we'll climb it. But I think I think Alan really admired John Backer and I think he, you know he respected what what John was doing and wouldn't have done anything that he thought was really treading over the line, especially in Yosemite or somewhere else in, in California.
1: What's interesting when we talk about the, the characters from the 1980s versus the Stone Masters in the 70s is the, the cult of personality that developed around the Stone Masters. But in a lot of ways, that didn't really happen around guys like Alan Watts, who as a climber was in so many ways more provocative and more influential um, I, I just find that interesting because he's someone I don't really know too much about still to this day. Whereas I could probably tell you, you know, 10 different John Backer stories that I've read about over the years or heard about. Is, is that because Alan, that was just his personality or was there something else going on where people at that time weren't maybe taking him seriously as they should have?
2: you know alan climbed in relative isolation at smith rock i mean when i first went to smith rock in 1983 he'd done what two two sport routes he'd done watts tots and he'd done chain reaction and nobody knew what that area was about even when i went there i looked at it and thought well this is just a bunch of crumbly rock i mean you know big deal and I think people kind of had the same idea. You know, it's just this, you know, backwater place in central Oregon that nobody's ever heard about. And all you read about it is it has terrible rock. So nobody cared what Alan was really was doing there. Uh, and what he was doing was just methodically raising the standards of American free climbing. I mean, really, he even up before 85, when he finally did the East Face of Monkey Face, um, you know, he pushed uh, the standard at Smith Rock up into the mid 513s, uh, which was, you know, uh, as high a standard as it was being climbed anywhere in the States. And nobody really knew. You'd see a report come out in the base camp section of Climbing Magazine that, you know, said, oh, yeah, Alan Watts climbed a route called Double Stain, 513B. And, you think, you know, Double Stain, what a, what a great name for a route. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, it's like, yeah, so what? Um, nobody went there and nobody cared. I don't think he sought the same kind of attention and he didn't really surround himself with people who would spread the gospel of Alan Watts. Um, The Smith Rock locals were kind of a tight bunch and it was kind of hard to get into that clique.
1: Did he see himself as doing something like revolutionary or different? Or was he like, this is is sort of along the lines of what they're doing in Europe and, and so I'm just going to be doing what they're doing here?
2: Talking to him...
1: And reading what
2: he wrote, you know, he was just in isolation at Smith Rock and didn't know any better. It was just the way that made the most sense to him. With the rock being not really great, it made sense to rappel down and clean off the taco chips and other loose holds before trying a route. And since you couldn't get gear into the the vertical and overhanging rock, uh, place bolts on rappel. And so once once he ran out of crack climbs to do, he went to the faces, and the only way to protect them was to place bolts on rappel. So that's what he did. So um, he didn't, you know, he didn't tell me that he was really influenced by what the Europeans were doing. It was just the solution that made the most sense at Smith Rock.
0: Do you think that, in terms of of Allen's attitude or Allen's sort of push against the um, against the prevailing ec- ethics, is there anything things that Anything that Alan you think got wrong or pushed too hard against? And, and it was some of the, the critique of his style, a critique against his sort of abrasive um, kind of push against, against what everybody else was doing. You know, he did um,
2: later on when he really, when, you know, when Smith Rock was discovered, um, you know, I don't know if Alan got a little full of himself, but when you saw that um, Mountain Magazine article that I wrote uh, in 86, and Alan wearing his wayfarers while he's making a casual ascent of the East face of monkey face, you know, he looks like ever so much like the star, um, you know. And so he, he, at that point, I think he realized that what he was doing at Smith Rock, maybe a little bit before, but what he was doing at Smith really paralleled what the European climbers were doing. And he, he really embraced that. And he really pushed that as a, a legitimate uh, approach to that type of, Climbing on that type of rock. I don't think he was, you know, trying to be abrasive and saying this has to happen everywhere. He just was saying that this is legitimate for here and other places. And, you know, people who have a wholesale attitude that this shouldn't happen anywhere ever are, are, you know, they're missing the boat. And he, he really, he really, was in favor of pushing the standards and he really was a big fan of smith rock and the notoriety it was getting so much so that he invited jb trebeau to come over uh to try his sunshine wall project i mean who
0: does that which became to, to bolt or not to be right
2: right i mean who does that hey i got this 514 you right. know it could be the first 514 in america i've tried it it's pretty hard you should come over and give it a shot and so when people said that that JB stole that route from Alan, that's not really true. I mean, Alan invited him over.
0: So what did he expect? Right. <laughs> it's like yeah, you bring the the sort of fox into the hen house. Uh, something's going to go down. So about your own climbing and your own connection to this era, what do you think it was about? What you found interesting in climbing that you know drew you into that group, uh, you know, versus the, being a holdout to that stone masters Yosemite era, which continued well into the eighties into the nineties. And I mean, you know, they're still lurking in the caves to this day. So what was it about your, you know, what you wanted out of climbing that drew you into that group? You think
2: that's a good question because I, I was always, you know, I, I grew up on the traditionalist approach to climbing. Mm -hmm. You know, I hang dogging never occurred to me until somebody, you know, told me what it was. And then I tried it and thought, well, this is dumb. I don't like this. I just want to climb, you know? So I I never really got into it. You know, Backer was my hero, really. And Peter Croft also. And so I really wanted to emulate those guys and try to do things in good style. And so it's funny that I fell in with Todd Skinner and Alan Watts. But, you know, Todd had such an engaging personality. He, you know, was so friendly and inviting i mean the first time i met him you know we were top roping on big mo a joshua tree and he basically he just invited me to go climbing with him every day after that i think paul piana was about to leave and he needed somebody else to hang out with so so i got to fill in for paul for for a couple weeks and then after that you know i'd get letters from todd from far off places saying hey i'm going here this summer you should come with me Um, Hey, what's happening in your neck of the woods? What are the, your last great problems? And so we, you know, we, we correspond, we'd meet along the road at various places. So, you know, it was hard not to like Todd and hard not to be enthused about the things he was doing and, and trying to get you to, to, you know, come along on. And, and Alan, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I'd only met Alan once or twice before I went to Smith Rock in, um, 85 i left i left yosemite with kim kerrigan johnny woodward and jeff Wigand. and we drove up to smith rock because kim wanted to check out some of these routes that were being reported in climbing magazine and so i said yeah i'll go with you guys i'm sick of the valley anyway so i went up to smith with them and spent a whole day climbing before i got on a bus for home but kind of after that visit I started going back down there because I really realized that there was a lot going on down there. And, you know, Alan was there climbing 360 days a year. So it was hard not to run into Alan Watts. And since Alan remembered me climbing with Todd. And so he was welcoming. And eventually I was welcomed by the whole uh, Smith Rock crew. So, you know, I just started... I became something like a local for a while there.
1: All right, Jeff. Well, we... Uh, want to be respectful of your time and I ha- just have a, a question about your book which is called Hangdog days and I, I believe it's out this week but correct me if I'm wrong um, but my question is Is this a project that you were able to on-site or did you have to hang dog the writing process
2: <laughs> it, it was a it was a multi-decade project uh, yeah this uh, when I you know I, I wrote bits and pieces of it over many, many years. And even though, you know, after Todd died, I said, Oh, I better get on this. You know, I even had a dream once where Todd appeared and said, you need, you better get on it. And it was like, I don't know. It's, it's uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to be hard. People, some people might not like it. And he says, you know, kind of screw them uh, in his usual way. It's going to be, it's going to be brilliant. So uh, but even then, it took me more than ten years to actually get to the point where I was even willing to pitch it to anybody. And what I pitched was a, a manuscript that had two hundred and thirty thousand words. It was a sweeping,
1: oh, wow. s- sweeping
2: saga of the whole sport climbing movement and all kinds of stories and history and other stuff. And the publisher said, "Yeah, we're not, we, you need to cut that in half because we're not publishing Gone with the Wind." We're you know. We we have
1: that's like homeless person manuscript territory, <laughs> right. raving around with a kinko's copy of your your great work exactly. So so yeah.
2: yeah. So I had to I had to cut it in half myself, and then they turned it over to a developmental editor who read through it and said, "Well, where what are you doing here? Where are you going with this? Like, what what is this?" And I said, "Well, it's either a history." or it's a, a memoir, or it's a tribute. Hmm. And it's like, well, we can blend it so it's kind of all three. Because, you know, with this kind of story, even though it's, you know, called a memoir, uh, because it's based on, you know, basically my travels with these guys and the stories that we we overheard or told or um, endured, that, you know, that you have to include a lot of history, a lot of backstory for a lot of this to make sense to uh, someone who isn't steeped on the history of all this, which is pretty much, you know, most of the climbers today um, who didn't live through it or never
0: heard about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about this because I've always felt that the 80s were just missed in the history. And that played out in Valley Uprising, where they just did a big hop, skip and a jump over the 80s, essentially. But the 80s were 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 so important to how we climb today, because it's just so much happened to create climbing as we know it now that that people seem to not really get all happened as you guys sort of punched it out in the eighties. And I'm I'm just super excited to, to to see what's in this book and and to read these stories because it's I think it's the most fascinating part of free climbing happened in the eighties.
2: Yeah, it was a it was an interesting time as they say. And you know, when I've talked to people from back then, you know, with thirty plus years uh, you know, beyond it. Um, you know, a lot of this kind of seems comical and, you know, really kind of funny uh, now, but at the time, some of it wasn't, wasn't really funny at all. You know, just people got really riled up about stuff that nowadays is so commonplace that people were like, what, you know, people got
0: mad about hang dogging or placing a bolt on rappel. Really? It had so much meaning at the time. And again, it had so much influence on, on the way that we climb to this day that I think it's important that this sort of history gets out there. Well, it
2: was, uh, it was fun to, fun to write the book. And, uh, I, I learned some things as I wrote the book. Uh, there's still, you know, there's a lot, obviously, since I cut the manuscript in half, there were a lot of stories I didn't get to tell. There's a lot of characters, uh, who did important things that I don't even mention, or I just mention offhandedly because I really had to focus the story on that period when i was really active and really you know under the influence of the valley climbers and then you know exposed to these these free thinking radicals todd skinner and alan watts and all the crazy stuff they did and how people responded to them and others like them
1: so has has todd uh visited you again in your dreams to give you a review on this book
2: no no he hasn't although I did have a dream while I was working on the book. I had a dream and I don't remember it very well, but I was camped beside a river somewhere in Wyoming with Todd and Paul. And we had the most interesting conversation and I really wish I could
1: remember it. Um, so <laughs> that'll have to be for, for, uh, <laughs>
0: the second edition, I guess. Right. Well, awesome, Jeff. Thanks so much for, uh, for coming on the show. And, uh, Putting up with some technological problems that won't make it to the tape, but but we dealt with. And um, hopefully, on your book tour coming up, uh, we'll we'll see you around Colorado. Yeah, hell yeah, I'll
2: definitely be there. I'm gonna be. I'm doing a couple of book shows in Utah, at uh, like the last, like Thursday and Friday at the end of April, and then I have my next show is on Tuesday in uh, Laramie. So I got three days to kind of troll around Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, just to see what kind of trouble I can get into. And then uh, and then I do a show in Laramie and then the next night in Carbondale and then I scoot off to Boulder. So I'm really looking for a partner who will put up with me go, go running up the naked edge.
0: There you go. There's plenty of people out there. Is there anywhere, uh, is there anywhere, um, someone can go to, to see the schedule? Uh,
2: yeah, I think where I keep my whole schedule is on my Amazon author page. So I keep that perfectly up to date. I really can't share my calendar with everybody because nobody
0: wants to see when my my doctor appointment (laughs) is or when my, my dad's birthday is. So right on. All right. Well, um, We'll we'll post it up on the um, we'll post a link to it on our page as well. And um people want to come out and hear these stories, and uh, I think this is just going to be a awesome book to sort of blow the lid off this history that's, I think, been somewhat forgotten.
2: Yeah, we, we didn't even talk about the Lycra. <laughs> so I have pictures, just so you say, if you come to see my show, I have pictures of all of these people wearing the most god awful Lycra you ever saw. So that's worth that's <laughs> worth it right there.
0: I don't know if you're selling it or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- thanks again, Jeff. All right, thanks. Thank man. you. If you have a comment, topic suggestion, or just a good bit of climbing trivia, join us at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash runoutpodcast, or drop us a line at our webpage, runoutpodcast.com.